Welcome to Elevate L&D, conversations with Cincinnati's learning and development leaders, brought to you by the Greater Cincinnati Association for Talent Development. Research shows that experiential learning makes up 70% of professional development, but often doesn't get the bulk of the budget in talent development programs. In this episode, we'll discuss what experiential learning is and what it's not, and best practices for creating experiential learning programs. Our host, Amanda Mostetler, talks with Jessica Manning, Director of Learning and Development at Paycor, and Ryan Roddinghouse, Customer Experience Manager at Alta Fiber. They will share experiential learning stories and implementation strategies for companies of every size and any budget. Let's join the conversation. Welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Amanda Mosteller, Director of Talent Development with Employers Resource Association. I spend my days consulting with organizations large and small, discussing strategic initiatives and how talent development plays a role. One subject that has come up with increasing regularity is experiential learning. In my conversations with executives, I find a lack of understanding with regards to the impact intentional experiential learning strategies can have on their team members and their organization's success. And so that's what I want to talk about in today's episode. Experiential learning research shows makes up 70% of a person's professional development. Interestingly, though, organizations throw the bulk of their talent development budgets, energy, and resources toward the other areas of development, being structured learning environments and programs such as classroom-based learning or e-learning programs, as well as coaching and mentoring programs, leaving little time, money, or energy for the most impactful approach to growing professionally. So today we will be discussing making experiential learning meaningful by looking at what it is, what it's not, ways we've seen it work really well, and horror stories of when it's gone awry, as well as rounding out our discussion on how to create experiential learning programs for any organization size and budget. I'm thrilled to be joined today by two rock stars in the talent development space, Jessica Manning, Director of Learning and Development at Paycor, and Ryan Roddinghouse, longtime Manager of Sales Learning and Development, now Customer Experience Manager at Ulta Fiber. Jessica, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? Sure. Hey, everyone. I'm Jessica Manning. I actually started my career in sales and made the move to learning about 12 years ago as a sales trainer. Eventually moving into a learning leadership role, I've had the pleasure of leading learning strategy for a couple of amazing organizations, spanning technical, leadership, soft skills, and customer education. Like many learning professionals, I have a passion for helping people realize their fullest potential and helping businesses succeed. Thanks, Jessica. Ryan, can you tell us a bit about yourself and your background? Absolutely. Hi, everyone. I'm Ryan Roddinghouse. I, like Jessica, I started my career in sales and eventually followed to learning and development. I led our sales new hire program for about seven years before moving to my current role in customer experience. I still get to dabble a little bit in learning and development. Um, A big part of my current role is launching a company-wide three-part customer experience training over the next three years. That's really exciting. I didn't know that, Ryan. I love that. I feel like that's part of the reason I got the job. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure. I'm sure that's part of the reason. 
All right, well, let's kick this off with laying the foundation of what we mean when we say that 70% of professional development is through experience or on the job. Jessica, let's start with you. How do you interpret experiential learning or on-the-job development? For me, experiential learning means we're giving learners the opportunity to put what they've learned into practice and apply it. When we bring people in for formal training, however you deliver it, it's usually focused on a process or how something's designed to work. We like to call that the happy path where I come from. The reality is that things don't always go the way we think they should, or there's always some nuance that comes up that needs to be navigated or requires some critical thinking. Giving learners the ability to experience real-world scenarios outside of the happy path is where real learning and growth happens. I've never heard it called happy path, but I love that. (laughs) I've always called it, you know, in a perfect world. And then you always highlight the world isn't perfect though. So be ready for that. Happy path. You can patent that. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. I will start to pull on that now. Well, thank you for sharing your perspective. And I think it's important to also establish, though, what we don't mean by experiential learning. Ryan, how can someone misinterpret what experiential learning or on-the-job development can be or look like? Yeah. So like Jessica mentioned, there's formal training that for so long has kind of been the gold standard. It's very classroom or e-learning focused, and it didn't put learners in those real life scenarios. One example that comes to mind for me is our training on our sales ordering system. For so long, we would train our new employees on how to use the system. They would place order after order after order, and they'd be really good at it. But what we saw was when they had to use that system while interacting with customers, they froze up. Mm. They not only needed the training on the ordering system, but they also needed to have that mock sales interaction to take that skill to the next level. It needed to be more realistic to mimic a real sales call. Once we made that change, we saw an immediate change in their ramp-up period for the new hires after sales training. We also incorporated that into their final test to complete the training course. So even though the new employee was getting hands-on training, it was always on that happy path, as Jessica put it. No curveballs are really being thrown at them. So changing it up and having them work through the order with a live person as they would once they were out of training was really a game changer in their learning experience. Yeah, and I think you're you're highlighting that big difference between simulation training, which we can often and easily do in a classroom environment, versus that experiential learning. Because we often think about not, they're trying to learn the system, so we shouldn't make it hard, mm-hmm. and also add the things they'll experience later. You're like, right, but, but they'll also experience those things. So yeah, we absolutely <laughs> need to help them for that. Thank you for that clarifier. I think that's a great highlight of how it can get misinterpreted. So I happen to be really passionate about this topic and the need for this area of development to be targeted with intention more deeply as part of development program strategies at all levels, from onboarding through succession planning. I'm curious from either of your perspectives, so this is a group question, why do you think this type of development strategy gets left out of organizations' programs more often than not? That's a good question. I see a few things. Um, First of all, experiential learning design is not easy. It's not straightforward, nor is it cut and dry. 
It needs to meet learners where they are, sometimes aligning with their day-to-day job. So you've got to get creative, think outside the box, and be able to influence your stakeholders to get on board. That's the first thing. Secondly, it generally requires additional resources to help guide the learning outside of a traditional classroom or e-learning environment. And it takes time. So again, you have to have the buy-in, giving your learners permission to spend the time completing that experience. Consider onboarding, for example. Most companies want people to get up to speed and contributing at 100% as quickly as possible. Without the ability to articulate the return on that time investment, experiential learning is generally the first thing that gets cut out of these programs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think also, as I'm, I'm thinking about what you're saying, adding that means that it takes it out of kind of that professional learning team and puts some of that responsibility during that onboarding into other leaders and other groups who probably are thinking we're already down people. That's why I'm hiring someone. Exactly. (laughs) Now you're asking me to take my own time. That's what we pay you for, isn't it? Exactly. And if it's not people, it's investment in tools and technology. And so again, it's just the resources required to make it go. Mm Mm-hmm. Not everyone is is willing or able to make that investment. Well, and then even the development of those people and how to effectively do on the job development, experiential learning and guiding them takes development for those individuals that get partnered with or are the manager of also. So to your point about time, investment in dollars, tools, and people's time and energy. You make a great point about the people that are supporting it outside of the classroom because generally they need some direction too. Mm -hmm. You want to make sure you have a consistent experience from learner to learner and to get everyone singing from the same sheet of music, you've got to have some resources or some guides to help Mm -hmm. keep it all on track. Yeah. Yeah. That is a very good highlight as to why it often is the thing to go. If we're going to pick something to go, it's going to be that. Um, But hopefully we can talk through some strategies to help organizations see that not only is it really important, but you can make it work through some of the pro tips we'll give everybody later. But I am also a big believer in development through learning and through storytelling. So I would love to talk about this a bit on a deeper level. Now that we've established what experiential learning is and what it's not, if not executed effectively, like we were just discussing, it can really actually wreak havoc on a team member's development and an organization's success. So Ryan, let's start with you this time through your career in sales development. When have you seen experiential learning or on-the-job training go awry? Well, yeah, I think this kind of goes directly to what Jessica was just saying. But back when I was facilitating new hire training, one of my challenges was I had a class full of different job roles, several different job roles. We had door-to-door sales reps, retail sales reps, telesales, and sometimes we even had business account managers thrown all in the same class. There was a lot that could be overlapped, like products and systems, but there was a lot that couldn't, and we quickly learned from that. One example of something that didn't go quite as planned was our shadow days. So since there was such a mix of job roles in the class, we would use shadow days to help the learners get more experience in their particular role. So during these shadow days, the new hires would go shadow a coworker that was doing the job they would eventually transition to after training. 
So when you think about what employee should the new hire shadow, the recommendation from the manager would always be the top sales rep. Where mm-hmm. we found the trouble was sometimes the top sales rep may not be the best at teaching. They may be mm-hmm. great at selling, but teaching may not be something that they're interested in, which is totally fine. It just it takes a certain type of person to be able to really transfer that knowledge and have the patience to do so. And to no fault of the high-performing sales rep, but they didn't sign up to be an on-the-job trainer. Right. So we had to rethink these shadow days and what would be the most effective and impactful for the new team member. So we landed on asking volunteers that would be interested in being shadow day mentors And then we offer training for them on how they could best support the new team member on their onboarding journey. So just like Jessica had mentioned, the consistency and having everybody singing from the same music sheet, that all ties into this. I think the key there was finding someone who had a desire or a passion for mentoring and teaching. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's such a great watch out too, right? I didn't ask to, you're not giving me a spiff for (laughs) why am I spending valuable time that I could be closing a deal, explaining to someone how I'm doing this to close the deal. Mm-hmm. And another watch out on those I often hear about is just because they're, for your experience and example, just because they're the top sales rep doesn't always mean you want people replicating what they do. <laughs> 100%. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I love recalling the singing, the same sheet of music. Jessica, you are full of quotes today. I'm taking that <laughs> one too. So You're welcome to have it. But Jessica, you've led learning teams, initiatives, and strategies for several job roles and organizations. Share a story of when you have seen an experiential learning strategy for development work really well. Yeah, the best example I can think of um, was several years ago. I led a team that was focused on onboarding a technical role for a high growth organization. It was really important to get these new team members up to speed quickly, and it was important that my team could balance onboarding so many new hires at once. So we developed a strategy that enabled us to lay a solid foundation for those new team members over their first few weeks, and then we sent them out into the field with a buddy for two weeks. And during that time, they were hands-on in the role, they got to encounter whatever surprises that came their way on each job. Then after those two weeks, we brought them back into training where we were able to deliver a teach back of some of the different challenges that they ran into and how they were able to overcome those challenges. And this strategy enabled us to bring some of the messy real world scenarios into their onboarding training while helping instill confidence and new skills in the new hires. We were crowdsourcing before crowdsourcing was cool. (laughs) And the program followed this cycle for one more round of field experience, followed by a week of debrief, sharing, and learning. These cycles also enabled my team to rotate cohorts in and out of training so we could handle multiple cohorts at once. Awesome. Hitting back on that point, we talked about how we ensure consistency. You know, this really put that into practice in full swing and at massive scale. And so it was really important that we stayed connected through those debrief weeks when they were back in the classroom to understand how their experiences were going and really intentional about asking for their feedback. Uh, we also were sure to train the mentors in the field to make sure that they knew and understood what was expected of them, what was expected of their new hires, and how to report back if they recognized an issue with the program. Absolutely. That's awesome. 
And it, it sounds to me like both of you had some learning moments from your different experiences, some lessons learned there. And I would love to hear what lessons did you learn through those experiences that you want to highlight and make sure kind of to drive that point home for our listeners. Yeah, I mean, I think my biggest takeaway from this was just like we mentioned before, not everybody is a trainer and that's okay. You know, just mm -hmm. because you're a top performer, it doesn't mean that you have the tools to pass that knowledge on to another team member, or honestly, even the desire to do so. I think that was one of the hardest things for my managers to understand because they always wanted to go with that top performer because to them, looking at them, they're the model of what mm -hmm. everyone should be doing because they're hitting that goal month after month after month. But I think in order for it to be successful, you really have to have a well thought out plan to make it work. And it'll take lots of planning and trial and error but it's definitely possible with the right people and pieces in place. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's that ounce of prevention. It's worth a pound of cure. And in a fast-moving organization, the ounce of prevention can seem like an overwhelming hill to climb. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, and it's such a good call out too. And I'm with your managers. I don't understand how everyone doesn't want to be a trainer. Doesn't everybody get bit <laughs> by the training book? Apparently yeah. not. And I maybe it maybe back, at some point. <laughs> I think that goes back to the point I made at the beginning of this conversation. And it really goes back to the design, right? Mm -hmm. it, there is a reason why people steer away from it. It requires some serious design thinking and planning and so much coordination because mm -hmm. there are so many different parties involved. And you think you might have the right track and you think you know who should be involved. And then you find out that maybe it wasn't right. And I think, you know, for me, it's really about uh, being willing to test and iterate. One of my other key phrases, if you ask any of my team members, I probably say it every day, it's progress over perfection. Let's, mm -hmm. let's just get something out the door and let's continue to improve on it. So anytime you send learning outside of a formal environment, you're going to take the risk that the wheels are going to fall off. So you've really got to be intentional about soliciting feedback from your learners and all parties involved. It's a group effort and it shouldn't be designed or even innovated in a vacuum. If things aren't working, you've got to be able to course correct and get the learning back on track as quickly as you can. Excellent, excellent points. Thank you both for those stories. I, I really think storytelling and examples can be a great development strategy, and I'm sure our listeners enjoyed hearing those. So the daunting task that has, in my opinion, and I think this builds to what we're talking about here, um, effort time, resources that has held organizations back in the past is related to budget and resources. So to make an effective experiential learning strategy impactful uh, to their team members, of course, we need both of those in some fashion, or at least that's the mindset from a budget perspective. But in truth, with the right strategy, you can work on any budget and pull in the pivotal roles that cannot be underscored enough, which is the leadership, the managers. They play a part in this. So I want to hear from y'all. Jessica, let's start with you this time. What are some tips you can give for a small organization that may not have their own talent development team to lean on to make a strategy like this work for them? I think anytime you're delegating the responsibility of executing a program to someone outside of a formal learning role, you have to be really clear in your expectations and accountability practices. I think in these situations, providing tools to help people execute consistently, as we've talked about, and resources to help them feel prepared to tackle the tasks. Mm -hmm. 
Open communication so you can keep a pulse on how things are going can be really impactful here too. So again, I think it just goes back to the design and creating a plan that's complete. Mm -hmm. It's not just, hey, you're going to go execute this experience, but it's the plan and direction and expectations around how those experiences should be executed consistently. And if if an organization's thinking strategically on it, they have something in place now, you don't have to change it in a minute. You can take all year to plan and launch it in your next fiscal year. Um, so to your point, design and planning is important. Something like this takes a lot of both, and it doesn't mean that what you're doing now isn't effective. You can just increase that impactfulness and start planning now for your next fiscal year. The only clarification I'll make is a lot of organizations don't have the luxury of waiting a year. Um, again, the organizations that I've been a part of have been really high growth and fast paced. Mm -hmm. So again, in those situations, I think it's progress over perfection. So you've got to mm -hmm. you know, roll it out maybe in a phased approach, start somewhere, get some feedback, iterate and continue to improve. Oh, I love that. That's a great point out too, right? It doesn't have to be complete. It's just start and continuous growth. Exactly. Thank you. Yeah. Well, Ryan, what about an organization with a small but mighty team on a shoestring budget? <laughs> so what are some thoughts on how they can achieve success with something like this? Yeah, it's funny. I feel like it, it always comes down to budget. Yep. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I, I mean, I wouldn't consider the organization I was working for when I was in training a small organization, but when it came to sales training, I would consider it a small but mighty team. So mm -hmm. we had to get creative. Like I mentioned before, we relied pretty heavily on subject matter experts, mentors, and team leads to help fill the gaps where needed. So just reiterating what Jess had mentioned, you have to be clear with what is needed from that subject matter expert and anyone that's providing outside help to make sure you're all on the same page. It can be done. Um, and if everyone's working working together with clear expectations and a good game plan, I think it can be done really well without having a large budget. I love that trending theme through both of your responses is communication, clarity, communicate some more. Be exactly. sure we're clear. You yes, can never over communicate. communicate. <laughs> <laughs> we could do a podcast episode on literally anything and we would just constantly go, and then if you communicate <laughs> and then communicate again. Round it out with some communication would be great. Clearly. Right. Clearly. Yes. Yes. Clear communication. Thank you for that call out too. Well, as I mentioned, the manager cannot be highlighted enough as a pivotal role in success of any intentional or on-the-job development program. In addition to the suggestions that Jessica and Ryan were giving, I also always talk with organizations about things like coaching sheets for the manager to have intentional conversations each week once they're out of coming back to a classroom setting. Like Jessica, you were saying debriefs, iterate, come back, let's talk. If they don't have that capability, don't have a team, aren't doing that, pull in the managers, create coaching sheets so they can have these intentional, targeted, specific conversations around experiences that have been created for the new team member. Other things, uh, I work a lot in the manufacturing space and we talk about new team member stations where all equipment or machines that they're working on have job aids posted everywhere to, to help them remember what to do 
while doing the actual work. And these are some great strategies that only cost the effort of pulling the job aids together and the paper that they're printed on. So things like that can help continue to facilitate and support these resources we're pulling together to do something like this when resources are finite in every organization, no matter how large or small. But I want to thank Jessica Manning of Paycor and Ryan Roddinghouse of Alta Fiber for spending time with me today talking about making experiential learning meaningful. Ladies, say your goodbyes. This has been really fun. Thanks for having me on today. Yeah, thank you so much. I enjoyed my time with you ladies. I always love talking with you ladies. We'll find some other one to do some other time. (laughs) Sounds good. (laughs) Thank you for listening to this episode of Elevate L&D. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Elevate L&D with Amanda Mostetler, Jessica Manning, and Ryan Roddinghouse. Next time, host Garlene Staten and her guests will discuss how to drive learner engagement. Have a talk that you'd like to hear on the podcast? Email or comments or suggestions to podcast at gcatd.org. Thanks for listening.